0: Welcome back to Designing with Climate in Mind and to our fourth episode in this 10-part series which explores how we can design our way out of the climate emergency. I'm John Ku. For the last eight years I've been fortunate to meet and collaborate with leading thinkers and doers in sustainability, science and design and it's a pleasure to share these conversations with you. Our guest today is designer, lecturer and circular economy expert Claire Potter. We'll be talking about demystifying a buzzword we often hear in the world of sustainable design, the circular economy, a crucial but often misunderstood concept. We'll also consider the training of the next generation of designers and explore the role of creativity in eco-design. Hi there Claire, welcome to Designing with Climate in Mind. How are you doing today and whereabouts are you?
1: I'm really good, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Loving to chat to you. Um, I'm currently in very, very sunny Brighton down on the south coast of England. Um, It is utterly glorious and the sky has been blue for as long as I can remember. But um, I'm currently in the process of building a camper van on a sort of a summer break. So I'm up at my mum and dad's building that and I'm currently sitting in the spare bedroom, which doubles up as the husky dog's bedroom. So I've nicked Mushka's bed for a second. (laughs)
0: i mean behind being a Husky in the the summer heat that we're currently experiencing. But let's get back to the van. Would you say, (laughs) we're going to be talking about the circular economy. Is the van a circular project? The van is
1: as circular as possible. So this is um, quite an old van that I've bought. It's a Mercedes Sprinter, um, 20 years old. um, And it was initially bought as a quick doer upper Mechanically, it was very good, but the interior was a little bit dated, and a little bit mouldy, but um, as things sort of went on, more was taken out. But all of the kit and all of the the infrastructure um, has remained, and the materials that are going back in are as circular as possible, or reused, secondhand, repurposed. So yeah, a lot of the stuff we're probably going to be talking about today.
0: Has it been quite nice to be working on the van as a family? As a family?
1: Yeah. So it's only really in the last sort of three weeks I've started doing the van. So we're now at the beginning of August. Um, So I've been doing it since the sort of second week of July because I had other projects I was working on. So it's really nice. Lockdown was um, very quiet for me. I was um, in a tiny house on my own away from my mum and dad when we were sort of doing the shielding um, for coronavirus. So, yes, it's really lovely to get back and to do stuff as a family. Mum's feeding us like endless cake and amazing food. So, uh, yeah, it's very much a team
0: effort. (laughs) And you normally work out of an interesting studio, um, if I remember right, it's called Studio Loo and itself has a bit of a a circular reuse vibe.
1: Uh yeah, it does. So um so the clue is in the name. When we came to naming our workplace, um it's basically a decommissioned public toilet uh, just on the edge of Hove. And it was interesting in the renovations, it went from going down the loo where we were doing the works to suddenly it looked like a studio. So it went from going down the loo to do some work to going down the studio. So when it came to naming, we just combined the two together. So it's a really small little brick building, but it's got amazing glass roof lights. And we found the original uh, surfacing behind two layers of old tiles, um, which is almost like a terrazzo, which really, really lovely, Um, brilliant natural light from the glass roof lights, which were there from when it was built, which we think is around the 1930s. So, yeah, it's got a fair age to it. And it's a lovely little space. And everything that went in material-wise, again, was reused, repurposed, came from a different project. The front door was an old client that so he had in his loft that was getting rid of. So, yeah, so definitely another project of reuse.
0: And very much a, a kind of extension of what, what you believe. And, you, you know, you've really made it beautiful. And I think in the built environment, people often focus on the new flashy buildings. But when you can take something that's old when you can reinvent it, when you can marry its purpose to its occupant's purpose, that's a much more sustainable approach, surely?
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, there's there's places for uh, for new things and new materials. But quite often, older stuff has got that story that comes with it. And I love stories. Um, when I teach, it's very much about telling stories and giving concept and, and context to things. Uh, and what's been lovely when we've done sort of a, a tour, in adverted commas, because basically I could stand at the front door and you could see everything in the studio. It's that small. Uh, but when people come in and they they want to know about the building, so I can tell them the story about the surfacing of the walls. I can tell them the story of the, the old school where the parquet flooring came from. Um, uh, the different, you know, all of the tables were, came from a local scout group and there were those old trestle tables that, you know, back in the day they were fine, but now they're a health and safety risk because the, the trestles can shut onto your fingers. <laughs> so, but they're great. They're brilliant wooden tables um that you can fold down if you need to. Uh, I've got an old architect's table. So all of the stories that come with the different bits and pieces give much richness to the space more than just getting something out of a catalogue would have done.
0: The stories and the circular economy, I think it's it's a strong theme. I think it makes me think about that TV show, The Repair Shop, which... Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, the premise of the show is people bring in an old family heirloom um, that's seen better days. But when you explore the history, their personal connection with it, and then you see their reaction when it's restored to how it was before, it's it's a real tearjerker, to be honest. <laughs>
1: yeah it is um and I think that that idea of like sentimentality is something really interesting when we think about objects um you know why we hold on to something, why we don't hold on to something uh and I think having the ability to have an object that you can tell that story that it was my great grandmothers or great grandfathers um really really sort of. I don't know, it enriches what you're doing. And for example, working on the van with with, um, with my dad, we're using tools that were my granddad's, um, which has been lovely to think, you know, these hands that had used these tools before and now we use them again. Um, but also it's really interesting that when we have something that's old, we shouldn't be afraid to change it if it suits our lives a bit better now. So, you know, with family heirlooms, if they've reached the point of no return, but can be reinvented in some way, if that means it's gonna fit your life better, then I'd say do it. Don't think that you have to create this nostalgic bubble and keep everything like a museum. You know, if it means you're gonna use it more, then change it, you know, to suit your life. I think that's really important.
0: Yeah, I think restoration has its place. Um, but if that purpose isn't what you need it for now, thinking about reinvention, you know, giving new life to to an object in a different way is surely a a good creative challenge and and allows that item to adapt with the times
1: yeah, and if you know it means you're going to use it longer or you're going to be able to pass it on to somebody else that can use it for longer and when we talk about circular economy, which I know we're going to be doing loads about, um you know having something last longer is so critical because it means that you don't have to buy something new or you don't have to create something from scratch. And quite often when we have older things, older products, older materials, they're built differently. And sometimes they're built more robustly, which means they can handle being changed Um, and they're probably going to last a hell of a lot longer. I mean, I know the tools I can go and buy now, you know, do the job, but will they still be here in the amount of time that some of the tools I'm using now will be in the future? You know, we're talking 60, 70 years. Probably not. So it's really interesting to understand how things have been built over the ages.
0: So looking back over your, your life and your experience, is there any particular, whether it's a tool or an object um, that you've either repurposed or reused, or, you, you know, you've updated any examples that come to mind that are very personal to you?
1: Yeah. As far as updating things, I think tools, actual physical tools, um, obviously, been building the van. I've also been building uh, or restoring a boat, which will eventually become my houseboat. And there's some things that I've been using on Dora. Dora Bell is her full name. Um, there's a lot of tools that had one purpose that I <laughs> that I've actually repurposed for boat building, which has been quite an interesting way to think. You know, this is like a a mechanics tool, but then it's something that can be adjusted and used in a different way um, because it's quite utilitarian in a way. It's sort of It's got a purpose to it, but you can sort of adjust it. And over the years, oh, my goodness, there's been so much stuff that I've had and hacked about to suit what I needed now, Um, cutting things up, repurposing them for different bits of furniture, finding scrap things on the the street. I think once we actually – my mum and dad and I – or actually it was my mum, we went Christmas shopping and I found a rotating – um, a card display unit that just been dumped on the, on the side of the road. Um, and I somehow convinced my mum to, to get my dad to put it in the back of the car. And it eventually went down my allotment and it was used as like a teepee for growing my, my peas and sweet peas. Um, so yeah, it was like, I was like, okay, what do I need to, to, for, to grow sweet peas? You need a structure that's strong. Um, and you need a structure that's got lots of things for things to cling onto. So a rotating dis- card holder from a display shop. <laughs> It sort of fitted the job. Uh, But yeah, I think the the guys in the allotments did think I was a little bit kooky doing things like that.
0: No, that's true. I think we, you know, from our side, we try and use a lot of recycled materials and our products. And we're always talking about how nature doesn't do any, well, nature doesn't do waste. The waste from one kingdom goes to another. But what I like about these examples is there's a more positive angle about when you can take a tool or you can take an item, and you can you can be creative with it you can reinvent it you can you can give it a whole new life so it's not just about avoidance of um waste but you're creating opportunity
1: yeah reinvention um i mean the the re in a prefix to a word is used quite a lot in the spheres that we work in um yeah, reinvention is as key as anything. Thinking creatively, thinking what something else can be, like a reinvention of itself. Um, and yeah, you're 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 so true. When we talk about circular economy, it's about how we're the only species that create any kind of waste. The way nature works is very different. So really, we're the outliers. We're the ones that are doing things differently, um, and we're the things we we're the ones that are doing things inefficiently. So the more we can learn from that natural way of working is going to be so critical going forward.
0: So Claire, what really is the circle economy? I've seen the diagram by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation many times. I've been to many conferences and been to currently many webinars where the circular economy is bounded as a, a phrase, but to you, What does it really mean?
1: Oh, that is literally the million dollar question. So for me, the circular economy is something that is regenerative by design, which is something that the Ellen MacArthur Foundation says. But the way I explain it to somebody who doesn't know the term at all is to use that example of nature. So we're the only ones that create any kind of waste and we work in that linear fashion. So... We take stuff out the ground, we make things, we use the things. And then at the end of that thing's life, regardless of what it is, whether it is food, whether it is a building, a car, piece of clothing, it ends up going in the bin, uh, it goes to landfill, it gets incinerated. So that's what we call a linear economy in a very, very basic way. Um, And the circular economy is basically connecting the end right back to the beginning. So whatever the end of life is, it connects it to the be- beginning, which is how nature works. Nature doesn't have that linear system at all. The wastes from one species become the nutrition of another. Um, if you think about a tree, the um, leaves fall from a tree, but that's not wasted. That ends up becoming food and nourishment for other species. It nourishes the ground. It turns into compost. So there's a circularity. Everything goes round and round and round with the seasons. Uh, with the year, um, across the lifespans of all of the different species. So, we're the only ones that work in that linear way. So, the circular economy for me is very much learning from nature. How can we connect the dots and how can we get the end right back to the beginning again?
0: And would you say that we've made it confusing ourselves and that the use of kind of circ- the circular economy becoming a buzzword itself and how people approach it has made it less easy to understand? for the man on the street or um, the lady in business? Or, you know, it's made it more confusing for us all.
1: I think in a way it's become, oh, it's difficult because it's a term I use every single day, really, in some way or another. But I think to a lot of people, they haven't heard the term before. And we, if we look at it, we look at circuit, circular, everybody can can see a circle, can understand a circle, what it is. But when we put the word economy in it, that sometimes switches a lot of people off. Because people be like, well, I'm not an economist. I'm not interested in that, or you know, um, it's nothing I've got any background on. So I don't. I, the people feel disconnected um, and can't really engage with it in the way that if you say, okay, we're trying to create a global system that works like nature. Most people go, ah, oh, that sounds pretty sensible. But if you think about using the term circular economy, it can switch a lot of people off before you've even started. Uh, And it also sounds a little bit like the stuff that you'd read in The Guardian or something a politician might say or something an academic might say. So it sort of becomes exclusive rather than being something that we should all just be chatting about without feeling afraid. We don't know exactly what it is because it is pretty complicated and it stretches into so many different ways um, of the way we live and we work. So yeah it's a tricky one I sort of love it and hate it at the same time
0: (laughs) well I mean we both work in it and we both probably if we had a tally chart and think about how many times we probably use a phrase in a week you know there's a lot of tallies to be written there but I heard a rumor that you've been working on a book that's been looking very much at the circular economy and kind of making it simpler so tell me tell me about the book that you've been working on
1: Yeah, so this has been my lockdown project. Um, Even though I haven't got to the point of doing more than half of a pull-up, this has been my lockdown project. So I was commissioned to write a book right at the beginning of when we went to lockdown in the UK, which was towards the end of March. Uh, And it was to write a book that anybody could pick up, regardless of their background, um, and understand what the circular economy could be for them. So it looks at all of the stuff that it encompasses which is vast but then it really tries to detail down the stuff that people already understand already do already will go oh right yeah i see what you're talking about now so it's not it's trying to demystify what the circular economy is and make it in uh, put it into words that everybody can engage with and not feel excluded by so yeah it's been such a lovely project i've just it's all been sent across to the publisher and i'm currently just about to start the editing process now so it's really exciting
0: and then within that I, like when i think about sometimes my discussions with with colleagues and friends around the circle economy often they talk around what they remember as a kid or what they might call common sense a common example if you you know, you're trying to describe deposit return systems for plastic bottles. People often go, "Wasn't that like when I was young in the 70s or 80s, and there were glass bottles? And if I rounded them up and collected them, took them to the news agent, I get a bit of money for that." And it's just interesting to see some, you know, people's memories of doing things at circular in the past that they might not have called circular they might have called it common sense or they might have called it um just avoiding waste and it's yeah yeah, such an interesting area to look at in terms of getting away from stepping out of the bubble of sustainability and communicating this concept in a way that people can really understand
1: yeah there's a lot of those examples in the book so i try to um knit it back to stuff that we used to do so from a personal perspective because it is you know it's written from um my background both as somebody that does this but somebody that's always been interested in sustainability ecology whatever you want to call it um but yeah using stories from when I used to go to the refill store back with my nan but it wasn't called a refill store back then it was like a scoop and save and we went there because we could get um Exactly the right amount of dried fruit she needed to make a fruit cake, or just the amount of scone mix she needed, and it also means that I could I could get the broken biscuits and um, you know fish out all the broken custard creams which were the best ones <laughs> and stuff like that that was just you know going to the scoop and save with Nan um, again like you say with glass glass bottles telling a story about my dad doing glass bottle collection when he was younger. And it was just the way that things were done. Um, So it wasn't circular back then, but it was circular. We just didn't call it that. And I think sometimes we um, we're very good at reframing things and making them sound exclusive without going. Yeah, but don't worry about the term. Don't worry about the umbrella thing. This is everything that it is, which is stuff that you all know you already do or you probably remember stories of people that have done it. So there's a lot of context of going, this is what this title, you know, this chapter is about. But do you remember back when this happened? So hopefully people can go, oh, so it's nothing new and scary. It's just a reinvention of stuff that we've sort of already done.
0: So did you have any favourite examples or any that surprised you when you were pulling this together, pulling examples together for the book?
1: Um, there's a lot of looking back to when we were in times of crisis. So, um, I'm, I don't remember, um, the war. Yeah, I've just turned 40. So, but I remember the resourcefulness of those times of need. And I use it a lot when I'm teaching, when we think about scarcity. And back then it was a different type of scarcity, but everybody had to pull together. People learned how to grow their own food. Um, people learned how to repair things. people used materials in a more resourceful way and and sparingly uh, because there was a need to do that um from a global perspective from a from a nation's perspective. but everybody felt that they could do their part, and that's sort of what I'm trying to sort of get back to in the book is saying you know we're at a different time now, but the needs are still the same. We should learn how to grow things, be responsible, understand where our Uh, our produce comes from Um, and in some ways the COVID crisis has been a really interesting time to write the book because it has been another time of dire need and I've seen a lot of people sort of scrambling back and looking back at those previous times when we say like in the 40s um, of trying to re-understand how communities worked, trying to understand how things were grown, resources, supply chains so, yeah, it's been a really interesting time to to write it. And that was the surprising time, of how now has reflected back all my little notes that i would made about maybe considering wartime resourcefulness.
0: I would totally agree. I think during lockdown in London, the power of the street WhatsApp group and people being able to share things with each other or someone teaching someone how to fix things or say on – Instagram live Finisterre or Patagonia teaching you how to repair and darn or the gr- number of people who are growing their own herbs and vegetables and kind of teaching their kids um, how to, to grow everything from tomatoes to basil or sometimes it's their like kids teaching them to be honest it's been interesting to see that at a time of adversity and of crisis people's perceptions of worth the longevity of products and being self-sufficient have changed a little bit
1: yeah and i think it's also because so many of us were in some kind of lockdown we sort of had the time to relearn those skills so it's always become a bit of a cliche that you know in in lockdown everybody learned how to do sourdough now me included i started a sourdough mother called hand sourdough um, Brilliant. who i'm very proud of, um, to go with my um, uh, kombucha mother called obi One Ken Scobie because it's a Scobie is the, the mother of a kombucha. Um, that was named by somebody else. I can take no credit. Um, so thank you, Melody. Uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, I, th- I think with, with uh, this time, we had we suddenly had the time to do things. But I think there was a sense of panic. And just before lockdown sort of really kicked in, um, I was buying some uh, salad leaves because we always grow them at the front of the studio because it's south-facing. And there was um, a mother there with her child. She was in her 30s. Child was probably made three or four, I suppose. And she was just standing looking in utter panic at all of the seeds and actually the lack of seeds because a lot of them had started to already become sold out. And she was like, uh, "What? What do I grow?" And sort of looked at me in like panic, going, oh, "How do I grow this stuff?" And I was like, "Well, what do you want to eat? That's the first thing. Don't don't choose, choose something like a kohlrabi, for example. If you don't want to eat it, just what do you want to eat? You know, is it for you? Is it for your kids?" Um, but there was that sudden, "Oh my goodness, we're in a time of crisis, and I don't know how to do things." Um, so that's been really interesting to see how that's come about as you say with like fixing and how brands have stepped into the mix and gone yeah we can teach you this over over the internet you don't have to have somebody standing next to you anymore to learn how to do something because you've got sort of youtube and instagram and you can learn so much stuff remotely and still feel connected so yeah it's been a real time of development i think for many of us
0: and people's connection with things that they own i mean i I really like the work of james otter james otter's a he makes kind of surfboards and hand planes um out of wood, and he's all around the connection people have. They go down to his studio down in Cornwall and they they shape their own boards that they're going to ride for many many years but that connection between an individual and you know a surfboard or an item of clothing. People getting closer. The trend people getting closer to that, that connection point, as opposed to throwaway culture, um, just buy something, don't have any attachment to it, and let it go. And I, I wonder if that's spreading outside of um, the usual suspects. More, more people are rethinking, rethinking that. But on the flip side of that, if I think about PPE and masks, um, which are really important. For us at the moment. But when I see gloves and masks on the street, on beaches, in rivers, um I wonder if there's also a threat to any benefit that we've had um in terms of people taking more ownership and getting more connected to products.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I and I think particularly with the the PPE example, um it's all very well having a real concern about the environment, but then if something becomes bigger than that concern and obviously PPE we've now seen entering the environment COVID has become more of a a stress point and a more critical point for some people than environmental awareness which is something we definitely need to readdress I
0: thought it'd be cool to kind of share some examples of the circular economy that we're we're seeing and and the one that I wanted to share was a bit of work that's been done by by TerraCycle it's a it's an initiative called Loop. They're working with a supermarket in terms of Tesco and a number of brands like Ren, Maltin Brown, um, and Unknown. And the idea is you can have your groceries delivered to you with zero packaging waste. So everything's in refillable aluminium tins or in glass. Um, and I'm excited about it because there's a chance here that we could actually see these concepts of the circular economy or these. Zero waste approaches or these plastic free approaches and often and often will be often the way kind of start to scale. But is that have you have you seen the loop idea, Claire?
1: Yeah, I I really love the loop idea. So I I saw the when they were doing stuff in the US, and as you say, they've just launched in the UK, um, and I think it's a lovely concept for lots of different ways because, like we were saying with the circularity, sometimes it can feel exclusive, so it's out of reach of some people. Um, But this is an everyday example of refilling and reuse. And it's also convenient. And we found definitely over the COVID period in the UK um, and elsewhere, how uh, grocery deliveries have, and like online deliveries have just absolutely boomed during the time of not, of people not being able to go out. So sort of combining that online shopping experience, which is quick and easy and familiar with something that is also refill and reusable, is really interesting. Um, and also, if we think about the refill stores, usually when you go to a refill store, it's brandless items unless you're getting something liquid. So it might be that you're getting a, like a branded hand soap, for example. But what is great about Loop is that it's all the brands that people are familiar with and maybe love, but done in such a way that allows them to be part of this sort of refill revolution. So I I'm really excited to see how it's going to be adopted, but I know there's definitely some barriers and and things that you know we can definitely chat about to how it could scale up.
0: Definitely one to watch, and they're only in their first six weeks or eight weeks of of launching. But I I am hopeful about it, and as as more products become available, for example, you can only get peanut peanut butter, you can't buy jam at the moment. Um, let's see how it how it grows. But away from, from groceries, when you think about the circular economy and you think about um, cool entrepreneurs and cool solutions, who springs to mind to you?
1: My favorite example um, are the guys at Boreo. So these are guys who are surfers, skateboarders, and a few years ago now they decided to combine forces and create skateboards and sunglasses out of fishing nets so this is a an area really dear to my heart and i know the same with you as well john um using a material that otherwise would be discarded to create things of use and have a longevity to them so these sunglasses are brilliant i love my sunnies so much and they have been dropped and pranged all over the place and they are so robust Uh, and everybody always comments on them um So not only are they creating really lovely stuff, but that stuff is also a pure material. And when we think about circular economy, that's really what we want to get to. It's not just using a material for another purpose, but trying to keep that material as pure as possible. So if I do bust my sunglasses, in theory, they could be reprocessed into another pair. Of sunglasses so the materials are not combined they're as pure as possible um, and they have just gone from strength to strength not only creating interesting products but with great collaborations and all of the stuff is rooted in community building back with the fishes that they obtain the nets from down in Chile so it's not just creating cool stuff but it's actually rebuilding communities um, and educating so many people about um the environmental impact of of activities they're brilliant
0: i have a lot of time for for david ben and kevin and the bro guys i think um with our own project networks um we've been using the same materials in terms of fishing nets and they've been a wonderful wonderful foil for the last kind of eight years and i often kind of think we've learned as much from them as they might have picked up from us, um, from everything from testing nets to thinking about supply chains. And what I really like about their approach is they did two things. They built a supply chain for discarded fishing nets, of which there's around 640,000 tons dumped into our oceans every year. And that's an old stat, so it's probably more than that. But they were also so creative in their collaborations, creating everything from the sunglasses that you and I both, have which, if you ever did break, we could probably recycle into many things, even flooring. Um, yeah to kind of recently with Patagonia, the lids for baseball caps, and one of my favorite ones, which just shows my inner child, ocean plastic Jenga.
1: Oh, I knew you were going to say that because that's one of my favorites, too. <laughs> Absolutely I don't have a set it.
0: anymore because I, I donated my last one to a school in Cornwall and I don't regret oh. that. It was a very important decision to make, um, but it's, oh, it's just a really, really clever way to, to, to use creativity and fun and to connect with manufacturers who, are, you know, you might challenge some of the bigger games companies and toy manufacturers as being a serious part of the problem sometimes of waste plastic rather than the solution and the choices that they make and I guess that sparks an interesting question what's the role of creativity in the circular economy
1: well I think you you hit the nail on the head it it for me it's about fun so remember when you were a kid and you were doing something creative like you were Playing with plasticine Play Doh or Lego or something. And half of the fun was in creating something that you didn't quite know what it was going to be at the beginning and ended up at something at the end. So when we grow up and we become adults, we sort of lose this ability to play, we lose this ability to have fun. And somehow creativity becomes a chore and it doesn't, you know, it sort of goes away from something that we have fun doing. And of course, if you're having fun, you're more likely to have awesome ideas. And those awesome ideas, if you have 100 of them, one of them is likely to be a little nugget of gold that you can turn into stuff that's also going to engage with other people and also allow them to have fun. So I think this is what the Jenga Ocean does brilliantly, is that it links us back to that time of playing Jenga when we were a kid. But it's also educating us about um, ocean health at the same time. because they have got facts on each of the blocks. Um, and we should play more. We we are much more able to have interesting sideways, slightly abstract and bonkers ideas when we're having fun rather than being serious, I think.
0: Which brings me to a couple of your past projects. You've often exhibited at Clark and Well Design Week, and I think one of my favourite installations that you've created ocean plastic jellyfish.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Tell us, tell us about the magical was- life.
1: Oh, so we did Clark and Well for a few years and I always rebooked the same space. So we were down in the dungeons in uh, a so It was the old police cells. And there was one particular cell that had a lovely sandy floor to it and because a lot of the product and the research work the studio does is, is around marine elements and marine plastic particularly is sort of fitted. So every year I rebooked the same space with no idea what we were going to exhibit at all. And... My dad calls me a jitter, which stands for a just-in-timer, because I'm a real firm believer that things will sort of pop into your head at the right time. Um, But we were coming close to Clarkwell a few years ago, and I was leading um, a beach clean, which happened to be run at the uh, same day as a large running event in the city, um, which was sponsored by a sports uh, drink. Let's just put it that way. Um, and there was lots and lots and lots of these bottles littered all over the promenade. Um, they were being picked up, but they weren't being picked up quick enough. So they were blowing everywhere. It was a really blustery day in February. So there was a—I was leading a group of volunteers and we picked up 365 bottles in about 20 minutes from a very small stretch of the prom. So instead of it just going to incineration, which is what would have happened because technically it was food contaminated plastic because it still had some of the product inside. um, We decided to take it back to the studio and we split them into their component parts, which was taking the sleeve off, taking the cap off and ending up with the body um, and then decided to do something with them. And it was at that point that the jellyfish was born because I had a plastic bottle string maker. So basically like a blade that was in a block of wood you could draw a plastic bottle through, it spins around and creates like a long string. And I was, you know, stringing these bottles and they were just sitting in a pile. And I was like, looks a bit like a tentacle. And I was like, okay, well, let's see what we can do. See if I can weave it. Let's see if I can melt it. Um, And it was a process of elimination, what works and what doesn't. And eventually it became a jellyfish that was molded and woven over an old wire lampshade frame and then sort of heat treated sort of shrunk so that it was completely pure uh, p.e.t so just the bottle element um and it meant that it could sit over an led light and in the wonderful shade of the uh the platform ele- element of the cells they became like these glowing jellyfish in this really dark space um And by going through those processes, it meant that we turned these bottles, which were the third worst element for recyclability in the UK, because there's so many different types of plastic, we turned them into fully 100% recyclable, pure material products. So it was a really interesting conversation piece, because it not only looked beautiful, everybody thought they were blown glass, which was hilarious, because I'm like, no, come in and just scrunch them up, they're made from bottles. So you had this conversation about beauty, you had this conversation about material, but you could also have this conversation with people about uh, longevity and process and purity of materials, which is so critical when we think about circularity. So yeah, it was it has been one of my favourite projects as well to work on and to show.
0: And there's just a nice playfulness about it in terms of how to be, get people to interact. I remember you sharing a couple of of insights and I, I i watched a few people in the dungeon and i now call it the dungeon instead of the police cells because of our <laughs> because of us chatting but um it was great to see I mean, you mentioned beach cleans early you know you've been a, an active rep for surface against sewage you've done some great work with peer-to-peer and um, on the latter group i think one of my favorite playful ways to get people to interact um with marine plastic that you've had was was it a peer-to-peer silent disco beach clean
1: yeah, so so peer-to-peer is an organisation that, uh, again, voluntary organisation that runs in, in the city where I am, in Brighton and Hove. Um, and we've got the two piers in Brighton. Everybody thinks of the Palace Pier, uh, but we've also got the West Pier as well. So this is the Relic Pier that is just a skeleton now. Um, but it's around a mile in between those two piers. So peer-to-peer set up uh, with that framing of, we can clean the beach between these areas. But Cleaning beaches can be a little bit of a thankless task. Every time the tide comes in, there's more litter. Uh, every time it's a busy day, there's more litter. Um, so doing something fun. So they, they came up with this idea of having a silent disco beach clean. So you get your headset, you go off for 10 minutes, an hour, whatever you can spare, and you pick up litter, but you're listening to awesome tunes at the same time. Um, so you're you're rocking out to whatever tunes are going on. Um, completely oblivious everybody else is just going about their day, but you're having fun doing something um that is really awesome but having fun in the process so yeah thinking creatively about how we can tackle these problems is definitely the way we need to be working
0: i think it's great i also think it's something you could do really safely at a social distance allowing you to go proper free form on the dance
1: yes and we've actually led a few beach cleans. so surf against sewage i say i'm one of the brighton reps um, and unfortunately, due to COVID, we missed our big spring beach clean we usually run, where we get over 100 people um, over the sort of two hour, three hour period. Really well supported in the city. We can't thank people enough for coming down to our beach cleans and our events. But beach cleaning, as you say, is something you can do very easily socially distance. So as long as the beaches themselves aren't busy with people sitting around Take a picker, take a bag, and you know, don't wait for an organized clean. Just get out there and do a little bit. Get your get your exercise in and and pick up some rubbish at the same time.
0: I think there's a challenge for me and you to make people some Beach Clean playlists.
1: Oh God, yes. I could think of some awesome tunes. Ones that have got lots of puns in, as well as some excellent tunes as well. Yeah, I think we should do that. That's another side project.
0: (laughs) We'll get working on it. So Claire, you're a lecturer as well as a designer and a circular only thinker, and you're often working with that next generation of designers coming through. Now, Kate Rayworth and her donut economics uses the donut in textbooks as a driver for change for economic students. But when it comes to the circular economy, Do you have a similar kind of intervention that you're looking for, for young up and coming designers?
1: Yeah. So first of all, I absolutely adore lecturing. I love the energy that you get in a design studio. We can have those conversations and sometimes really difficult conversations about the way that we design and the way the future is going. Um, I love the energy. It's absolutely fantastic. Uh, but yeah, when, when I, so I teach a module uh, um, with the final years on the product design degree at the University of Sussex. And one of the things that I've said to students in the past is um, to think like a traveller is one of the ones we use, which is, which is an idea from IDEO. So the idea that you go somewhere new, but you're completely switched on, you smell new smells, you see new things, because you're in that sort of survival mode. Of, of figuring out where your environment and how it's changed. So use that as an example to allow them to sort of open their eyes a bit. But when I was sort of thinking about this question as like an object, what would be the object like sort of the, crate, the Kate Rayworth donut? Um, for design students, I, I'm thinking about using the idea of like a bifocal pair of glasses, which sounds a bit random, but it's sort of the thought that when you work in design, And you work about, thinking about products. You have to have the ability to look really close at something. So at the tiny minutiae of the materials you're using, how things are built. But then you also need to have that really long distance view as well. So uh, where those materials have come from, who the end user might be, what might happen to this thing in 10 years' time when it's out of your hands, it's off your design table. Uh, it's out in the big wide world so yeah I think I'm going to be bringing in bifocal glasses uh, into my sort of teaching methods to try and get them to understand both near and very very far sightedness.
0: I really like it as a concept and I mean outside of the the brilliant students that you're, you're teaching I think we might have to borrow your bifocal glasses for the built environment because I think whether you're a principal in an architecture practice or you're an up-and-coming interior designer or you're an engineer that ability to look from different perspectives realize that the the true impact of materials the true value of materials and how you can make better choices oh i think i think we might have found your donut
1: maybe that's it i prefer a donut to glasses i don't wear glasses at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I do love a donut. I've got to admit, um, but yeah, I think, but that's. I think it also makes it very scary when we do talk about the responsibility that comes with designing a thing. And I always say "thing" and "stuff" when I teach because the students that I'm teaching might end up being product designers. They might end up going more into materials. They might end up going into something like the built environment or automotive design so they could go into a huge variety of ways of working but the premise is the same we need to understand our stuff which means we've got the responsibility to look into those depths of supply chains those depths of understanding consumer behavior user behavior how we interact with stuff Um, psychology sociology there's so much we should be thirsty to learn working in design regardless what design that is
0: it must be really exciting because you've got sorts of breadth of kind of students who could take many different paths to see where where they end up. But I, in terms of recent years, are you noticing any changes in the students' perspective on the environment and, and sustainability? Um, are you seeing um, any impact of kind of various protest movements or awareness movements um, impacting on on your student base
1: definitely um what's great about teaching is that well from my perspective you should be continually learning from the students that are coming in and when i started teaching this module oh man i think it was 6 years ago 7 years ago and it was called circular economy design back then um it was nobody really understood the term i think we were the first university to have that as a module as a as a distinct emphasis. Um, so I was pretty much at like scratch level with the students saying, okay, really um, simple ways of explaining things because it's nothing they'd really had framed to them in any way before. And then every year I noticed the students had a better base knowledge when they were already coming into the final year, already coming into the module. So it meant that I was like, okay, you get this already. I can notch it up a level. So every year I've been able to take those students on a deeper journey, on a longer journey, um, into understanding the complexities of this way of working. Um, And a lot of them come in utterly enraged about the way the world is working. So we've seen the uh, Extinction Rebellion, Uh, The rage that's come from that. We've seen this striking for climate. So much, much younger kids understanding things that maybe some university students didn't understand six, seven, eight years ago. So I think that is really, really something we need to encourage to channel that rage in a positive manner to say, okay, this is awful. The world is in a terrible state. But you know what? You can do something about it. And I really, really love doing that in in my sessions, saying, you know, let's talk about the complexities. Let's talk about what's worrying you. Let's talk about how you can work and make things better. And there's nothing more powerful than instilling that fire in somebody and then setting them free, setting them out into the big wide world to go and do amazing stuff and feel that they do have the power to do something. Because they really do. And this is to say this again, this goes back to why I've written the book, setting that fire in the individuals that we can then collectively grow into something that's really positive. I'm so passionate about that.
0: No, it's great. I think the age of apathy is certainly over <laughs> um, in recent years. It's something I used to worry about. But that fire, that passion, that willingness of whether it's students, whether it's people who want to be entrepreneurs in a company, whether it's people that are near the end of their career but just working out what their legacy is going to be, now is the time to take action. Now is the time to to push doing things differently, doing things better.
1: Yeah, and I think when you're at university, you should have that space uh, and you should be given that level of bravery to allow you to explore things that maybe you wouldn't do otherwise. Um, university should be a really safe space to allow you to push. And we've had some fabulous students over the last few years. Um, one being Lucy Hughes, who created a material um, completely from fish waste that is, uh, that looks very much like a plastic film. So not like a cling film, but like a film you would get maybe on the front of a sandwich packet, for example, but it's completely biologically derived from, from wastes and, um, And again, it was just an experimentation that she developed and developed and developed. And uh, she ended up winning the Dyson Award last year for her invention, which she's now working on now. So, you know, there will not be some silver bullet that will solve all of our plastic issues. But I know Lucy and there's many, many others that are looking at other ways of working that uh, is really encouraging. It's, It's so fabulous to see.
0: So, Claire, thank you so much for joining us today to talk around the circle economy quick question if people want to find out more about your work what's the best way to follow you say on social media
1: so social media i'm most active on instagram as uh, you can find me um at claire potter design and uh on there for the whole of actually of july i've been looking at plastic free july but also had links to the circular economy and trying to demystify and open up that conversation so there's some pretty sort of cool little posts that people can engage with so get in touch there on twitter i'm at claire potter um drop me a line have a conversation as you can probably tell from this podcast i love to talk um yeah yeah happy to engage with people however they should see it. it's
0: been an absolute pleasure Good luck with the book. I think it's due for publishing in 2021. So thank you for the advanced preview too. (laughs) And all the best with what's next for you in the the circular economy. I shall be following and so will our listeners.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you. It really has.
0: That was fascinating. Claire's right. The circular economy doesn't need to be a mystery. It needs to be simpler, more accessible, and more prevalent in our day-to-day lives. Awesome to hear about some great circular solutions, from Sussex students inventing a fish waste bioplastic, to my heroes for many years, the team at Boreo, turning nets to decks, to specs, and even Ocean Jenga. On the next episode, I'll be talking to Manish Datta from the UK Green Building Council. Manish is a very well-respected sustainability guru in the built environment, having played a key role in designing and implementing Marks & Spencer's Plan A, and also as a faculty member at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. We'll be exploring their work on advancing net zero, the circular economy, and on social value, whilst also looking at how COVID-19 and Black Lives Matter will shape a green and inclusive recovery. Thanks for joining us on Designing with Climate in Mind. If you're enjoying the series, please subscribe, leave a comment on our blog or a rating if you can. Until then, goodbye and thanks for listening. This podcast is powered by Interface, and if you'd like to learn more about us and our flaws, you can check us out on Instagram at Interface. Thanks also to our producers, Tangerine, for helping create the series.